You're listening to the Supertalk podcast, produced by the Australian Institute of Superannuation Trustees, shaping profit to member super. Hello and welcome to the Supertalk podcast. Modern slavery risks and reporting has come into sharper focus for institutional investors over the last couple of years. With an act and reporting requirements coming into effect in Australia, to provide a perspective on how it's playing out in the UK, we have with us Hannah Shoesmith, Associate Director, EOS of Federated Hermes International. Hannah, welcome. Hi there, thank you. Now, of course, you were a part of the Modern Slavery Reporting ASI session this year. How did you find yep. the session? Yeah, it was great. Um, it's good to get an, a perspective from Australia um, and to share some of the experiences that we've had here um, in the UK and indeed engaging with companies on this um, internationally. Yes, we and we like you said, the perspective, we certainly appreciate seeing how how the modern slavery reporting and acts have gone uh, elsewhere around the globe. Uh, so just for to get us started, uh, the UK has had a modern slavery act in place since 2015. How are UK companies faring with it so far? Yeah, um, well, it's definitely been a bit of a, a varied response. Obviously, there's been a lot of companies that are eligible to report against this. Um, so there was definitely a lot of momentum initially, um, interest in the market um, from all sorts of stakeholders um, about how companies would, would kind of address this in their, in their statements. Um, but obviously, inevitably, this has slowed down a little bit. It's been five years now, and it, it's hard to keep momentum with these things. Um, but certainly some businesses have, have managed to link um, the, the requirements of the Act in terms of modern slavery reporting um, to their kind of broader human rights strategies and, and have managed to keep it going. So certainly the, the good ones have, have kind of harnessed what they know their stakeholders want to hear um, and have kept up momentum and, and managed to sort of make it beneficial to, to the stakeholders that are obviously interested in, in their work around human rights um, more broadly. Um, so yeah, really it's been mixed. Um, it depends on the company, but there's certainly been some good examples. The challenge is really to, to keep up the momentum. Is there any response from government or regulators or even within the industry itself to kind of, I mean, like you said, that sort of slowed momentum, is there anything to kind mm. of happening to sort of boost it? Yeah, I think so. Um, we, we don't know anything officially. Well, as far as I know, we don't. I think there's been a number of consultations that the Home, home Office has been doing to look at this. Um, and we, we have worked with a couple of people that have been involved in that to try and see if we can extend this to, for example, um, uh, give it more teeth um, or maybe have an online database where um, the, the kind of companies have to upload their statements and it's easier for uh, consumers to look at what's been um, written by their, if they're making a choice about buying something, a purchasing choice, um, that they can then compare uh, modern slavery statements more easily than, you know, digging around on websites. Um, so there's definitely discussion about how to improve it. And I think um, we, we might come on to legislation, but I think what the EU is working on um, in terms of some potentially mandatory reporting on human rights due diligence may also influence um, the UK to, to kind of update um, the legislation as well. So um, we hope so. So the Act came into effect in 2015 in the UK. When, when the first round of reporting took place, 
What were some of the commonalities or insights that you found from all of the reports coming in? Yeah, um, like I said, from my perspective, there was a lot of interest and there was a lot of good effort made by certainly the the higher profile companies that were already in the spotlight on this. Um, Lots of companies did miss one or two of the key requirements, um, which seemed to me like a missed opportunity. You know, it wasn't necessarily signed by um, a director, an executive director. Um, A lot of companies um, kind of aimed for the CEO or the chair. And I think that was a, a good thing. And many companies sort of missed that. Um, and a lot of them, um, as we talked at the, at the conference yesterday, you know, a lot of them talk about due diligence and training and, and policies, um, but they don't really go into detail about what are the results of, of the due diligence work and, and what can they do about it really. So I think it's understandable. It's a, it's a difficult subject and companies are are cautious about how they communicate this with their stakeholders. It certainly can understand it, but I think um, it was slightly disappointing that across the board, initially companies weren't very good at talking about the impact of their due diligence, you know, what they'd found and and what remedy they'd provided. Um, And I think a lot of companies are still struggling with that now. Do you think there's a high enough level of education about modern slavery risks in the UK then? Um, I think it's definitely an issue. I think it's it's improved again um, since 2015, um, but it's something that I think all companies should spend some time looking at um, within their their employees and um, I guess investing some time in looking at uh, kind of a working group internally about how they could how they could kind of share information and, and educate um, relevant employees. Um, I, th- I think it's probably too much for the government to do. There are, you know, lots of good tools out there that are available that NGOs provide. Um, there's lots of kind of reporting guidance um, that I've seen online. So there, there are, you know, there is information out there. But yeah, I think companies sometimes just don't have the time to to, to sit down and, and, and look at um, starting off with, with education. Um, there's also, you know, the challenge of internal alignment. It might be that you have different opinions internally about, um, you know, even if they, they know uh, the basics on modern slavery and, and, and perhaps even the risks within their supply chains already, um, they might not feel comfortable in reporting what they've found in their statements. So it might be that their statements don't go into detail, not because they don't really know, but because they don't feel ready to, to share um kind of the information that they've found and that's we know we try to encourage companies to to be more open about the issues that they've found and and what they've done about it you mentioned uh legislation within the eu Uh, other than the uk are there any other countries that have an act in place and a number of years of reporting under their belts that will be good for australia to look to for for their experiences yeah, definitely. I mean, this is growing um, in terms of legislation um, across the, many countries, um, which is quite interesting to see. Um, and again, it's the legislation has developed as time has, has moved on. This actually started really the, the, the first kind of mandatory law on modern slavery started um, with a law in California. I think it's called the Transparency and Supply Chains Act, um, which actually came into, uh, came into force in 2012. 
Um, and that's not a national law. Obviously, that's state. It's not been picked up by any other states, as far as I know. Um, but that's interesting to look at how companies um, manage that. And then there was the EU non-financial information directive, um, which I think was 2014. Um, and that includes human rights, the environment and diversity. Um, but that's, I don't know whether how easy it is to actually compare responses to that um, for companies. Um, what is probably more interesting is in 2017, France adopted a law called the Corporate Duty of Vigilance. Um, and that goes beyond the kind of modern slavery act that we have in the UK and in Australia, um, I believe, in that it um, asks companies not only to report what they're doing, but to also take, uh, to carry out due diligence and write a plan of action against that due diligence. So it's a bit more specific about what companies should do. Um, and then um, the Netherlands have got a child labour due diligence law, which has similar requirements to the French law, but that's quite new. That's 2019. Um, so not probably not much opportunity to compare yet. Um, and then just looking to the future, and um, there's a few more on the kind of horizon. Um, in Switzerland, there's actually, it's quite an interesting approach. They're going to do a public referendum on this, on responsible business um, by the end of the year. Now, I don't have, I don't have um, much insight into this because I, I'm not familiar with the Swiss political system. Um, but I think it's fascinating that that's going to a public vote. Um, and that's very much about responsible business in terms of human rights. Um, and then Canada is looking at this. Um, that would be a modern slavery law similar to Australia's and the UK's. Um, and then again, the EU is looking at, I think I mentioned earlier, um, at mandatory human rights, due diligence legislation. So not just reporting, but it's mandatory to carry out due diligence. Um, in the first quarter of 2021. So we're just talking with companies about um, how we might, kind of how companies might be involved in shaping that legislation, actually. Um, so, so that's quite a whistle-stop tour of lots of bits of legislation. But as you can see, there's lots going on um, to kind of for companies to look at and learn from. That's good that there's such a good spread across the globe. I mean, like you said, from California through to the EU, uh, the, the Switzerland yeah. stuff sounds particularly interesting. Uh, what, what do you think would be the... I don't want to say purpose, but the, almost the purpose mm. of turning a decision like that over to the public. I don't know. I, I, I haven't had a chance to look at it, and I, I actually know about it, obviously, because I've seen it kind of top line in the news, and then I, I have a friend living in Geneva who's been telling uh, me about this okay. uh, referendum. Um, but, you know, I looked at it yesterday, and it, I mean, I think it's quite common for them to put decisions to the people. It's part of their kind of democratic process. Right. And okay. I think there has been quite a lot of debate with business representatives um both for and against this in terms of obviously the burden on business um and and yeah it's to the public vote so yeah i'm gonna kind of look it up and follow it a bit more closely because obviously it's going to require a lot more education for the population on what this means so i assume um the government will aim to do that at least so that they're informed before they make a vote but yeah interesting one it is especially i mean here in australia public referendums on issues are quite rare I mean, uh, yeah. other than the uh, the marriage equality bill, it feels like quite quite a long time since we, we had anything like that. So for something uh, along the lines of modern slavery, that's that is quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, so the obligatory, how has COVID nineteen impacted this topic and or issue that we're discussing? That seems to seems yeah. to be brought up on regardless of the the podcast episode we do. Uh, what challenges have been thrown up as a result of COVID nineteen? in terms of uh, modern slavery, particularly not just the reporting, but actual modern slavery itself? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, well, I'm afraid it, it is just not a positive um, response um, to, to that question, as you might imagine. And um, I think there's there's two things that it's made more difficult. The first is obviously it's just increased vulnerability. So people fall into modern slavery because of their kind of vulnerable, precarious um, and, and poor uh, living conditions. Um, and, and obviously people take advantage of that. Um, you know, there's a there's a desperation point um, where people will obviously look for work to help feed their families, and um, you know they'll they'll take roles that perhaps they um, know that there's a risk um, that it w- won't be the best job in the world, but you know they're in an environment where they don't have much choice. So it's increased those kind of vulnerabilities, um, and and will no doubt. We won't see this just yet, but we'll no doubt probably increase the population in poverty and in need of, of work. And um, that's obviously a, a real challenge that we've probably not seen the full extent of yet. Has the fact that borders are somewhat closed and much more tighter at the moment had any impact? Uh, has that slowed any kind of, I don't know, rates that you'd see of migration in terms of modern slavery? Or is it something that may boom as soon as borders start to open? Yeah, I mean, it, it, definitely. If it's if it's across border, sort of internationally, um, migration, then we're seeing that um, often contracts are cancelled and workers are, are left basically stranded. Um, they they might not have the money to get home. They might have lost the accommodation that's linked to their uh, contract. Um, they may still be in debt to a recruitment provider, recruitment agency in their home country or even in their host country and indeed we we received kind of the direct messages from um a kind of an ngo that works with these um migrant workers in the uae for example the united arab emirates um and we've been speaking with businesses directly about this um we also signed a joint letter um joint investor letter on this particular case in the uae and but there's also been um even if you just look at internal migration as it were you know from south india to north india and there's also been some issues with governments actually weakening laws that protect workers at this time to obviously try to help business Um, and the most high profile one we've seen is in Uttar Pradesh in in India that um, the government has actually um, exempted businesses from meeting uh, many of the labor laws that protect workers um, for a period of three years, um, so such a long time. And um, so that's why I'm, you know, I'm saying that we don't necessarily know the impact of this yet. Um, but then just on the other, complicate things, um, it's not just that, I guess, worker situation is more precarious. It's also that the investigators can't get out there and, and really get in person and speak with communities and, you know, look at the supply chain, uh, factories or fields, farms, um, and, you know, there's a lot of good work being done about remote assessments, but it, I think it's fair to say it's not the same as being there and speaking with with workers. Um, and there's a lot of great work that some real specialised consultancies do um, about kind of meeting with workers in their local communities and kind of triangulating information um, rather than, you know, just being in a factory and doing interviews uh, directly, which is often quite difficult to get information and a lot of that work just can't happen now. So, yeah, I think it is, it is a real shame and, and we'll be a few years trying to 
kind of see the impact of this, I guess for COVID in general, but in particular on modern slavery. There was a, a really great question in the ASI session on modern slavery reporting about who should own modern slavery reporting within a company, uh, as in which roles are responsible for its oversight. Uh, do, do you want to discuss a bit about that? What, what have you seen in UK companies? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be uh, annoying and say it depends. Um, but <laughs> I mean, obviously, the company needs to, to decide um, exactly how it's structured internally. But yeah, what I've seen and what works well is naturally you would want board support for this. So tone from the top and leadership direction. Um, and then um, for me, what's worked is kind of support from an executive director, you know, from a functional head, usually like a general counsel or um, a CFO. Um, and and then having kind of uh, all your working groups reporting through that line um, so that obviously you're aligned on, on, on everything from comms to kind of resource focus, how to provide remedy, um, that, that work is kind of done internally and agreed on um, you know, before you know, any work is, is, is done in terms of rolling out human rights strategy. So, yeah, I think it, it really does depend, but definitely it needs kind of the, the, the top-down support and then bottom-up internal working group, making sure that, you know, everybody from the relevant departments um, is involved and understands the position um, and um, probably also having some sort of stakeholder committee um, to, to report into that working group, you know, both from your employees, but external stakeholders like suppliers as well, investors, obviously, um, I think has worked, has worked very well um, within a business. Just finally, are there any other key things that you'd like to leave us with uh, that Australian companies uh, and super funds should be considering in regards to modern slavery reporting? Um, yeah, I think, um, as I've just mentioned, definitely getting internal alignment and structure in place, knowing who owns what, um, as I've just said, stakeholder involvement, all of that I think is really important to start off with. Um, and then I think start as soon as possible, because obviously this takes quite a long time um, and reporting deadlines are um, looming, but use the resources that are out there, the United, guiding, the United Nations guiding principles on business and human rights has a um, kind of standalone reporting website that is really useful. Um, and I recommend looking at that. Um, and as I said yesterday, you know, speak with experts, um, get, get uh, support from kind of how to get the, the local perspective. If you're looking at supply chain, human rights, and um, work with people locally and get their advice um, when you're looking at due diligence, designing due diligence and remedy. Um, yeah, and I think try to think about what are the, the key indicators of modern slavery that you might find in the supply chain. Um, when you're looking at the saliency of, of kind of human rights risks and what are those key indicators that you might find in your supply chain. Um, and think about kind of the next three to five years. I know, I think, you know, it's quite normal these days to be thinking three to five years ahead, at least for environment. But for human rights, sometimes it's difficult to have a, a plan that's longer than three years for companies. Um, and I would recommend trying to think longer term on a human rights strategy um, so that you can obviously look at metrics and reporting that shows a trajectory of, of progress. 
a lot of these modern slavery you know reports just say the same thing every year um and what is it that a company wants to achieve on this in the next sort of five five years five ten years um in terms of the impact that they have on improving um working conditions both in their operations obviously but also in their supply chain so thinking more long term i think would be would be useful That's all for this edition of the Super Talk podcast. Thank you for listening in. And of course, thank you to Hannah Shoesmith for her time and insights. And of course, to everyone at Federated Hermes International for their assistance in helping bring this episode together. You can find Hannah's ASI session and many more on the AIST website. Head to AIST.ASN.AU. Until next time, bye for now.